an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Soon after the Second Vatican Council began <clears throat> on October 11th, 1962, observers saw two opposing camps or parties or factions or whatever else one might call them at the council. Contemporary accounts of the council inevitably interpreted it in terms of a conflict. As examples, let me mention four such histories. The most notorious contemporary account was the work of Xavier Wren, who was, as he later admitted, Father Francis X. Murphy, CSSR, Professor of Moral Theology at the Alfonsianum in Rome. His work appeared as a series of articles in The New Yorker under the title Letter from Vatican City and caused a sensation. The articles were reprinted in one volume in 1968 under the title Vatican Council II. Murphy ended his book with a verse from the Apocalypse. Behold, I have caused doors to be opened before you, which no one can shut. In other words, the council opened doors that cannot be shut again. Another contemporary account got far less attention at the time, at least in English-speaking countries. Four articles by a young German theologian who attended all four sessions of the council. First as the personal theologian of Cardinal Franks of Cologne, and soon as a peritus, that is, one Father Joseph Ratzinger. After each session of the council, Ratzinger wrote a summary article. The four articles were published in English in 1966 as a small book entitled Theological Highlights of Vatican II. Ratzinger's great concern was theology, especially the schema on Revelation, and its final form was his greatest joy. A third book appeared a few years after the Council with the provocative title, The Rhine Flows into the Tiber. Its author was Ralph M. Wilkin, SVD, uh, Divine Word Missionary. He worked as the international publicity director for his order in Rome, and responding to a need he perceived, he set up an in the independent and multilingual council news service in Rome. He published his book in 1967, surely based on the material he had collected during the council. <laughs> the title, The Rhine Flows into the Tiber, already suggests his interpretation, although his account is generally balanced. A fourth book was published only recently in English, The Private Diaries of Father Yves Congar, OP, written in the course of the four years of the council. Congar died in 1995. He had prohibited the publication of the diaries until the year 2000. They appeared in French in 2002 and in English in 2012. The work was never intended for publication. 
Apart from frequent complaints about his own bad health, he made off-the-cuff remarks like, Cardinal Pizzardo is an imbecile. <laughs> Still, the book contains invaluable information about the day-to-day -day workings of Vatican II by one of the most influential theologians present. <clears throat> Avery Dulles once wrote that, quotation, Vatican II could almost be called Congar's Council. One, the two sides of Vatican II. What were the two sides at Vatican II? Each of the four histories just mentioned addresses the question, at least indirectly. Conservative and progressive are political terms and do not shed much light on the real issue. Wilkins' book suggests geographical categories, the Rhine and the Tiber, <coughs> and there is something to that division. Pope Benedict XVI, in his final address to the clergy of the Diocese of Rome, spoke of his recollections of Vatican II and used the term Rhine Alliance, by which he meant the bishops of France, Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands. The Italian bishops, who saw themselves as subservient to the Roman Curia, were the counterpoint to the Rome Alliance, the, I'm sorry, the Rhine Alliance. As Benedict suggests, the Rhine Alliance came to the council the best prepared of all national groups. And they had four main concerns. The reform of the liturgy, ecclesiology or the church's self-understanding, the word of God or revelation, and ecumenism. In addition, the French were keen to explore the relationship between the church and the world. But the distinction between the two sides was finally theological. One, was a pole, one pole was an alliance of the Curia, especially the Holy Office, and the Roman theological schools. It is fair to say that this side was symbolized by Cardinal Ottoviani. The alliance produced the 70 schemata or draft decrees in the preparatory phase of the council. Its theology was neo-scholasticism, as found in the manuals of the schools. The authority invoked was, above all, the popes of the preceding century, from Pius IX to Pius XII. These theologians were papal maximalists. They were also Marian maximalists giving Mary as, as exalted a role as possible, even to the point of wanting to define new Marian dogmas, like the Mediatrix of All Graces or the Co-Redemptrix. They were anti-historical, insisting on timeless truths. Although he was no longer active at the time of Vatican II, the theologian who symbolized this approach more than any other is the French Dominican uh, Reginald Garigou Lagrange, characterized in a recent and, and not unfriendly biography as the sacred monster of Thomism. 
this theology <clears throat> was allied with an outlook in the church that was a century old. Beginning in 1864 with Pius IX's Syllabus of Errors, the church had taken a stand against the modern mind. This opposition reached a high point in 1907 with the condemnation of modernism by Pius X. Granted, the modernists held some positions that were incompatible with Catholic faith, but still, the modern mind could not simply be stopped at the door. That, by the way, is quoted from Ratzinger. Uh, the other pole was centered north of the Alps. As Congar portrays them, the Germans were highly organized and listened regularly to Karl Rahner and, to a lesser extent, to Joseph Ratzinger. The French bishops were abstracted, but eager to hear and learn from Henri de Lubac and, of course, Congar himself. The organizational powerhouse was the Belgian Episcopate, and the Belgian College was a center of frantic activity. This side represented the heirs of a different sort of a theology, one that had been growing north of the Alps for four or five decades. It is often called la nouvelle théologie, the new theology. What were its characteristics? In the 1920s, the Dominicans at Le Sauchoir, a seminary or scholasticate then in Belgium, began to study St. Thomas's authorities, that is, the authors he read and quoted, and thus to see Thomas in his historical context. Marie-Dominique Chenu and Yves Congar were educated in this way. In the 1930s, study of the fathers began to be undertaken not to bolster scholastic theses, but for itself. Theologians assembled anthologies of their favorite passages from the fathers. Eric Shivara's Augustan Synthesis was published in 1934. Hans Urs von Balthasar's selection from Augustine's Explanations of the Psalms in 1936, and his Spirit and Fire, a beautiful anthology of Origen's writings in 1938. In 1938, too, de Lubac published his Catholicism, which Jean Leclerc called a charter, program, and model of erudite, penetrating, contemplative integration of the whole of patristics into the whole of theology. Despite the disruption brought on by World War II, remarkable new projects were undertaken. The first volume of the series Source Chrétienne, Patristic Texts with French Translations, was published in 1942. In 1946, de Lubac's Surnaturel, original supernatural, appeared. And in 1959, the first volume of his Exegese Medievale, four volumes, Medieval Exegesis. Von Balthasar began to publish Herrlichkeit, or Glory, in 1961. The famous series Theologie Historique, Historical Theology, was founded in 1962. 
Methodologically, what this approach had to offer was taking history seriously. To do so was not necessarily historicism. Historicism is the assertion that the only meaning reality has is to be found in the historical singular, in the past alone. But there had been change and development in the church, and that fact had to be acknowledged. If the word had indeed become flesh, that flesh was anchored in time, and the word had entered history. The new theology was not without opposition. Reginald Garrigou Lagrange and his followers had warned of its dangers. In 1950, Pius XII promulgated the encyclical Humani Generis. In a paragraph that seems hard to believe now, Pius warned against some, some who advocated a return to the way of speaking characteristic of sacred scripture and of the Holy Fathers, and thus deserting the language in common usage in the church and the philosophical notions that supported it. The relevant section reads, but from Humani Generis, but as to what pertains to theology, it is the counsel of some to weaken the significance of dogmas as much as possible and to free dogma itself from the way of expression long since received in the church and from philosophical notions that flourish among Catholic teachers in order to return to the way of speaking of sacred scripture and the Holy Fathers in explaining Catholic doctrine. Close quotation. In the decade after Humani Generis, from 1950 to 1960, prominent theologians were in different ways, removed from teaching or put under some form of censorship. In 1950, Jesuit superiors in Rome asked Henri de Lubac to stop teaching Jesuit scholastics. His books were removed from Jesuit libraries and withdrawn from sale although he, he was never summoned to Rome or forbidden to publish. In 1953, the Dominican Yves Congar was removed from teaching at Le Sauchoir, now in France, and forbidden to set foot in any seminary of the Dominican order. His writings were never censured, nor was he summoned to Rome, but he was forbidden to teach, preach, or publish. The Jesuit Karl Rahner was an even stranger case. In 1949, he published an article questioning the current practice of each priest celebrating mass by himself each day and proposed a form of concelebration. In 1954, the Holy Office forbade him ever to discuss concelebration again. Of course, all this was reversed at Vatican II. The theologians who had been censured in the decade after Humani Generis became the theological leaders at Vatican II. Concelebration was restored in 1963. Yves Congar's first three books on ecumenism, reform in the church, 
and a theology of the laity became practically the program of Vatican II. Henri de Lubac's book, uh, Meditation sur l'Église, poorly translated title as The Mystery of the Church, published in 1953, was practically a model for the Council's dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium. The new theology and the patristic revival it grew from now had its great chance. No lecture is valid unless you drink from a bottle of water. Uh, section two, the fathers of the church at Vatican II. It is one thing to say that Vatican II fell under the influence of the new theology. If we see this influence in the rejection of rigid neo-scholasticism and manual theology and of any serious historical approach, it is probably true. Of the 70 schemata prepared in Rome before the council, little survived the onslaught of the bishops. Epitomized <clears throat> in the famous vote of November 20th, 1963, on the schema on the two sources of revelation, and Pope John XXIII's act the next day, ordering the schema withdrawn and thus siding with the Rhine Alliance and their allies. The spirit of many of the 16 final documents, or at least the most important ones, is the spirit of the new theology. Ratzinger influenced Dei Verbum on Revelation. Congar had a significant hand in the decree on missionary activity, the decree on ecumenism, and others. But all of these statements are very general. To what extent, one may ask, are the fathers of the church present in the documents of Vatican II? An index to the Latin text of the council includes the name of every father of the church mentioned in the council documents, including the footnotes. I made a database of this material with the help of an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> the documents of Vatican II, by my probably imperfect calculation, contain 276 references to the Fathers of the Church. My general sense from looking at many, many footnotes is that apart from the Bible, the Fathers predominate, with references to papal writings <clears throat> being a close second and references to Thomas Aquinas and other theologians of the high Middle Ages being less frequent. Now, by reference, I mean three things. A father named in the text of the document, a father quoted in a document or in a footnote, or a father referred to in a footnote without a quotation. Fathers of the Church are named in the text only a few times. There are also a few references in the texts to the teaching of the Fathers in general. Second place, some Fathers are quoted in the text, but more often in footnotes. Thirdly, 
and by far most frequently, the fathers and their writings are named in the footnotes preceded by CF or compare to suggest that a teaching of the council finds resonance in the writings of the fathers <clears throat> or that they are a source of the council's teaching. In this last category, some of what I will call thick or clustered footnotes stand out. Footnotes in which eight, 10, 12, or more passages from the fathers are cited, suggesting that the council wanted to reinforce the authority of its teaching with extensive patristic references, perhaps because the point was controverted. Which fathers are referred to? And now the statistics begin. The father to whom the most references are made should not come as a surprise. It is Augustine of Hippo with 59 references. Eastern or Greek fathers with 10 or more references are Ignatius of Antioch with 18, John Chrysostom with 15, Irenaeus of Lyons with 13, and Origen with 10. Western or Latin fathers with 10 or more references are Cyprian of Carthage with 16, Ambrose of Milan with 11, and Pope Gregory the Great also with 11. Eastern or Greek fathers with five to nine references are Hippolytus of Rome, Basil of Caesarea, Cyril of Jerusalem, Cyril of Alexandria, and John of Damascus. Western or Latin fathers with five to nine references are Tertullian, Jerome, and Leo the Great. All in all, Vatican II makes reference to about 50 fathers of the church. Where do these references appear? Again, some statistics. Of the 16 documents of Vatican II, 10 contain references to the fathers. Far and away, the leader is the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, with 140. Next, perhaps surprisingly, is the decree on the church's missionary activity, Agentes, with 53. Then, almost tied, are the decree on the ministry and life of priests, Presbyterorum Ordinus, with 19, and the dogmatic constitution on Revelation Dei Verbum with 18. Only two other documents have 10 or more, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes with 14, and the constitution on the sacred liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium <coughs> with 10. Next, the council invokes the fathers generically. More interesting, surely, is the use that Vatican II makes of the fathers of the church. In five places, the council invokes the authority of the fathers generally. The first is in the decree on missionary activity. In the introductory chapter on doctrinal principles, the council fathers write of God's universal plan for the salvation of mankind. Even though God is not far from any one of us, 
human efforts to seek and know God do not suffice. God's universal plan was realized in the incarnation. The decree continues, quotation, the fathers of the church, the fathers of the church constantly proclaim that what was not assumed by Christ was not healed. They back up this assertion of constant proclamation by the fathers with a thick footnote, 17 references in all. Now the locus classicus for the principle that what was not assumed is not healed is Gregory Nazianzen's rebuttal of Apollinaris of Laodicea, his letter 101. But the thick footnote is clearly meant to stress that this teaching is a constant. It even includes Augustine's remark that, quotation, the Holy Spirit did not redeem us because he was not made flesh. The council fathers insist that Christ's human nature is complete and that salvation is complete only through that human nature. Now we might at this point continue our consideration of the introductory chapter to the decree on the church's missionary activity. This chapter is entitled Doctrinal Principles. In fact, about two-thirds of the references in the decree on missionary activity are in these two introductory paragraphs, three and four. This chapter maintains two theses. One, God has called all men to share in his life, and human beings on their own may seek God, even through religious quests. But two, their efforts need to be enlightened and corrected. Thus God appointed Christ as the one true mediator. The Council Fathers use patristic references to stress God's universal call to salvation, but also to affirm the unique role of Christ, thus grounding the church's missionary outreach to every human being in Christ and Christ alone. The decree goes on to teach that although the Holy Spirit was at work in the world before Pentecost, on Pentecost, the church was openly revealed to the world. Again, a thick footnote documents the fathers contrasting of Babel and Pentecost. Since Pentecost, the council fathers insist, referring to five of Augustine's sermons, as well as other fathers, the church speaks all languages and addresses the call to faith to everyone. Another interesting and perhaps surprising reference to the fathers collectively is found in the Declaration on Religious Liberty. In the section entitled Religious Freedom in the Light of Revelation, the Declaration insists that, quotation, one of the key truths in Catholic teaching, a truth that is contained in the word of God and constantly preached by the fathers, is that man's God, man's response to God by faith ought to be free. A thick footnote cites half a dozen Western fathers, including several texts from Augustine and Gregory the Great, to reinforce the fact, the idea, that the response of faith is free. 
There are three other generic appeals to the fathers in the council documents. Near the beginning of the dogmatic constitution on the church, the council teaches that at the end time, all the just from the time of Adam to the last of the elect, quotation, as the fathers put it, they will all be gathered together in the universal church, thus confirming the patristic teaching of the Ecclesia of Abel, uh, the church from Abel on. Secondly, in the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, the church teaches that, quotation, every man has the right to possess a sufficient amount of the world's goods for himself and his family, and comments, this has been the opinion of the fathers and doctors of the church who taught that men are bound to come to the aid of the poor and to do so not merely out of their superfluous goods. The footnote cites a wide range of fathers and extends to St. Bonaventure and St. Albert the Great. Finally, Lumen Gentium 56 invokes, quotation, not a few of the early fathers on Mary's obedience, which made her the cause of salvation for herself and the whole human race. The passage will be considered again below. In summary, the council uses references to the fathers in general and these thick patristic foot footnotes to reinforce certain teachings, not obvious ones like the existence of God, but distinctive ones. Uh, like God's universal salvific plan in Christ, or the freedom of faith, or the salvation of the just who live before Christ, or the obedience to share one's goods with the poor. Such doctrines may not have been obvious teachings in all the ages of Christian history. And the council wanted, I think, to invoke abundant patristic support for them. Then, fathers who are named in the text. A second category is fathers who are named in the texts of the documents. They are few in number, five by my count. Three are in the dogmatic constitution on the church. The council invokes St. Irenaeus' teaching that the apostolic tradition is manifested and preserved in the whole world by those who are made bishops by the apostles and their successors. In the paragraph on deacons, the constitution names St. Polycarp of Smyrna and quotes him on deacons. Let them be merciful and zealous and let them walk according to the truth of the Lord who became the servant of all, close quotation. In the section on the Blessed Virgin and the church, the Constitution names St. Ambrose and quotes his teaching that, quotation, the mother of God is a type of the church in the order of faith, charity, and perfect union with Christ. In Lumen Gentium 56, Irenaeus is named, and quotation again, not a few of the early fathers are invoked as agreeing with Irenaeus that Mary's obedience untied the knot of Eve's disobedience. A father is named once more in the decree on the life and ministry of priests. 
the Council remarks that in the celebration of the sacraments, quotation, as St. Ignatius Martyr already asserted in the early church, priests are hierarchically united with their bishop. Again, these explicit namings of fathers serve to reinforce points that were contested in the Reformation, among other times, such as apostolic succession or the veneration of Mary, or that represented a shift in emphasis initiated by the council, especially in regard to major orders. One need only think of its, the council's teaching on bishops as successors of the apostles, the clearer understanding of the bishop united with his presbyters as the archetypal Eucharistic liturgy or the restoration of the permanent diaconate. Next, fathers who are quoted in the text. What of quotations of the fathers in the texts of the council's documents? The big question, the great question about the council's theology is whether it can be said to have adopted patristic theology, the theology of the fathers. Clearly, the council did not simply say what the fathers said any more than the neo-scholastics simply said what St. Thomas said. But the final council documents were clearly the outcome of decades of biblical, patristic, and liturgical revival. Passages from the fathers are quoted in the council documents because they say the truth beautifully. Once again, in the quotation of Fathers of the Church in the documents of Vatican II, Augustine finishes first. Let me give just a sampling of some of the most striking passages. In the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, the council quotes one of the best known sentences from St. Augustine's Confessions, and it's the only time the Confessions are quoted in the, in the, in the, in the, by the council. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. The context is the council's chapter on the church's attitude toward atheism. The church rejects atheism, but speaks to unbelievers. And the very last sentence of this section contains the words of St. Augustine just quoted. The council writes, the the assurance that only God can satisfy the heart of man. Quotation, apart from the gospel of Christ, nothing is able to satisfy the heart of man. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. Augustine is quoted only once in Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation in chapter 25. Chapter 25 is part of the section on scripture in the life of the church. This chapter stands out as thick with patristic quotations. In rapid succession, the council warns priests, deacons, and catechists to immerse themselves in the study of scripture, lest someone become 
quoting St. Augustine, an empty preacher of the word of God to others, not being a hearer of the word in his own heart. All the faithful should read scripture for, as St. Jerome writes, quotation, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. For everyone, prayer should accompany the reading of the scriptures for, in the words of St. Ambrose, quotation, we speak to him when we pray. We listen to him when we read the divine oracles. To instruct the faithful in the correct use of the divine books is the task of the bishops. It is, it is they, in the words of St. Irenaeus, quotation, with whom apostolic doctrine rests. Given the fact that Augustine wrote at length about the church, it is no surprise that he has quoted several times in the Constitution on the Church. The opening chapter on the mystery of the Church ends with a quotation from the City of God on the Church's ambiguous place in the world, standing between persecution and consolation. Quotation, like a stranger in a foreign land, the Church presses forward amid the persecutions of the world and the consolations of God. A possible dialogue point with this morning's lecture. The chapter on the people of God affirms that the whole people shares in Christ's prophetic office. The whole people, in St. Augustine's words, quotation, from the bishops to the last of the faithful, in agreeing on faith and morals. In the same chapter, the Council follows St. Augustine in saying that one without charity is in the church in body, but not in heart. A final quotation brings us to the eighth and last chapter of Lumen Gentium on Mary. A long struggle took place at Vatican II between those who wanted a separate document on Mary and those who wanted to make the text on Mary part of the Constitution on the Church. <coughs> the latter group prevailed. In the introductory section on Mary, Augustine is quoted at length. Quotation, she is clearly the mother of the members of Christ, since she has, by her charity, joined in bringing about the birth of believers in the Church, who are members of its head. Close quotation. With the mention of the section on Mary, we should round out the consideration of that chapter. Almost a quarter of the references to the fathers of the church in Lumen Gentium are found in the section on Mary, paragraphs 52 to 68. One senses an attempt to affirm that the church's teaching on Mary even the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, defined in 1854 and 1950, respectively, are rooted in the ancient traditions of the Church. The Marian Maximalists at Vatican II did not get their way. But Chapter 8 of Lumen Gentium is a moderating document, not a rejection. Section 56 of the Constitution on the Church 
contrasts Eve and Mary and mentions the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception defined by Pius IX in 1854. Here again, we find one of those thick footnotes supporting the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And almost all the references are to Greek-speaking or Eastern fathers, I think quite deliberately. Lumen Gentium 56, which teaches that Mary freely cooperates in the work of man's salvation by faith and obedience, also ends with a cluster of patristic quotations. Immediately, St. Irenaeus is named and quoted. Mary, quotation, being obedient, became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. The council continues, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert with Irenaeus, another appeal to patristic consensus, that, quotation, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. When the fathers compare Mary with Eve, they call her, in the words of Epiphanius of Salamis, mother of the living. The paragraph ends with St. Jerome's words, death through Eve, life through Mary. It is not hard to see here the Fathers of Vatican II offering some consolation to those who had wanted to, def to define the role of Mary as co-redemptrix. The Council would not do that, but offered the dense patristic testimony of this chapter as suggesting that Mary's obedience is the fountainhead of our salvation without using the controversial language that some wanted. Paragraph 59 of Lumen Gentium is parallel to the one about the Immaculate Conception. In this paragraph, the Council reaffirmed the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary, defined by Pius XII in 1950, and gave references to several Eastern Fathers who wrote on Mary's Dormition. Thus, the Council affirms that the doctrines of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, often taken to be late and distinctly Western, are attested in the Fathers of the Church, and in particular in the Eastern Fathers. We might touch on just a few more high points among quotations from the Fathers. One is the Epistle to Diognetus, that little book probably from the second century, which, like Melchizedek, is without father, mother, or ancestry. <laughs> it is never mentioned or cited in antiquity. Its only manuscript was burned in 1970 in the Franco-Prussian War, so that it has even been suspected of being a 16th century forgery. But Vatican II quotes this beautiful little book several times in the Constitution on the Church, in the section on the laity, it quotes this, what the soul is in the body, let Christians be in the world. In the decree on missionary activity of the Church, Christians, quotation, are not marked off from the rest of men, either by country, 
by language, or by political institutions. Even the Constitution on Divine Revelation picks up a short phrase from the epistle to Diognetus, a man among men, used of Christ, a man among men. The remaining quotations, not to mention everyone, deal mostly with the church, with the order of bishop, priest, and deacon, and with the church's outreach. The Constitution on Divine Revelation quotes Irenaeus of Lyons, saying that the apostles gave bishops their own teaching authority. The Constitution on the Liturgy quotes St. Cyprian of Carthage. The church is the sacrament of unity, that is, the holy people united and arranged under their bishop, thus Cyprian. The tragic Bishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, is quoted in the Constitution on the Church. He who dwells in, dwells in Rome knows those in the most distant parts to be his members. In a somewhat different vein, Basil the Great of Caesarea is quoted in the Decree on the Oriental Churches. The decree states that under certain conditions, Catholics may ask for the sacraments from Eastern Orthodox priests, and Catholic priests may administer the sacraments to Orthodox faithful. The principle for doing so is quoted from St. Basil, quotation, lest we be an obstacle to the salvation of man through the harshness of our judgment. To conclude this review with a beautiful sentence quoted from Pope St. Leo the Great in the Constitution on the Church, in the section on the hierarchy, the Council speaks of the bishop's sacramental orders, manifested most eminently in his celebration of the Eucharist. In every community gathered around an altar, no matter how small or poor, or existing in the diaspora, Christ is present. For, quotation, the sharing in the body and blood of Christ has no other effect than to accomplish our transformation into that which we receive. And a few words of conclusion. As Henry VIII said to each of his wives, I won't keep you much longer. <laughs> What can we say of Vatican II's appeal to the fathers of the church? It does not suffice to say that the council invoked patristic theology. That term is far too vague. Looking back over the material I just presented, we could say that the council's appeal to the fathers is strongest in four areas. First, God's universal call to salvation paired with the unique role of and necessity for Jesus Christ the Savior. Second, the need for all to know the scriptures. Third, a new understanding of the different ranks and functions of those in holy orders. And finally, the council's teaching on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Speaking of the church's missionary activity, 
the council affirmed that God calls all human beings, even atheists, to salvation. Augustine's famous sentence on the restless heart of man confirms this. This affirmation might be seen as an echo of what de Lubac wrote in Sur Naturel. While the call to salvation is universal, however, the only way to salvation is Jesus Christ, the one true mediator between God and man. And so all salvation takes place through him, and through him, Jesus Christ incarnate. There is no Christ spirit apart from the incarnate one. Salvation in Christ is offered even to the just who lived before Christ, but they too are saved through Christ. And the response of faith is and must be free. Second, in the spirit of the epistle to Diognetus, the church exists everywhere in the world, in all cultures. It lives, in Augustine's words, between persecution and consolation. Charity is required of all its members. In Gaudium et Spes, the council affirmed a clear social teaching grounded on patristic evidence. Every human being has a right to enough of this world's goods so that he can lead a decent life. And so we are obliged to redistribute our wealth when it is necessary and not simply to give away what we have in excess. Third, in chapter 25 of Dei Verbum, the council seems to be making up for a neglect of the Bible. I'm sorry, to be making up for a past neglect of the Bible, if there was one. With Augustine, it teaches, it insists that preachers and teachers must know the scriptures well. With Jerome, it encourages all the faithful to study the scriptures. With Ambrose, it affirms that just as we speak to God in prayer, God speaks to us in the scriptures. The chapter ends with a more doctrinal affirmation following Irenaeus. The apostolic doctrine rests with the bishops, and they, and by implication not the guild of exegetes, are the authentic interpreters of the scriptures. Vatican II also rethought and reordered the relationship of those who have received holy orders. In this area, they often appealed to the earliest fathers, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, Irenaeus of Lyons, and Hippolytus of Rome to recover the primitive understanding of the clergy. The most dramatic teaching of Vatican II on holy orders was its treatment of the collegiality of bishops. As Irenaeus wrote, bishops have a unique authority to teach in the church. Bishops and presbyters are designated priests of the first and second orders, as Hippolytus held. The archetypal celebration of the liturgy is the bishop in his cathedral, concelebrating with his presbyterate and the people gathered with them in worship. Concelebration of the Eucharist was restored. The council also restored the permanent diaconate and suppressed the subdiaconate. Much of this restructuring was the fruit of the liturgical movement of the early 20th century. The documents also draw on Irenaeus when speaking of apostolic succession and teaching authority. 
Ignatius of Antioch and Cyprian on presbyters united with their bishop, and Polycarp on the humility proper to deacons. But the council also affirms with Augustine that every Catholic shares in the prophetic mission of the church. And finally, the treatment of the Blessed Virgin Mary at the council was a delicate issue. The church had experienced a Marian century, as Pope Benedict XVI has put it, from 1854 to 1950. Lumen Gentium affirmed, citing the fathers, that Mary was the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Mary reversed Eve's disobedience and unbelief. If Eve represented death, Mary represents life. Yet a few paragraphs later, it affirms that redemption comes through Christ alone. With Augustine, Vatican II calls Mary the mother of the members of the church. In other words, Vatican II, inspired by some elements of the new theology, advanced Catholic doctrine, advanced and adjusted Catholic doctrine and Catholic theology, but it did not break with the past. Far from it, the council in the 1960s joined hands with the fathers of the church of the first six centuries in affirming the one true faith, which we also celebrate in this year of faith. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.